Well, in this season of Lent, and I know as Baptists we don't highlight Lent too much, uh, but you can go online, Google it, you'll find out all about it, or go to your Anglican friend. Turn to your Anglican friend right now and find out what Lent is all about. Uh, but in this season of Lent, as we rush toward Easter, because it feels like it's coming early, I want to invite us to spend some time in the Psalms together. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Not all 150 psalms. Uh, that would be too much. And uh, so we're going to handpick a few psalms. And I decided it might be good for us to look at some of the psalms of lament. Because these are the psalms that are so important to us, and yet we don't often turn to them. We, we are used to a lot of other psalms, like Psalm 23, right? Some of you could quote it by heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's going in your mind already because we turn to that psalm a lot, and we should. And it's a great psalm. Or Psalm 19, sometimes we start worship services with, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. We love those psalms. We put them on banners, over the doorposts, all those kind of things. Or even Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. We turn these great words into songs. We sing them. The beauty of the Psalms is that they give us language for our prayers. Sometimes we don't know what to pray or how to pray. And sometimes we can turn to the Psalms and we find language for our prayers. And these Psalms are great. But what about Psalm 3? It's mostly good. But then we come across this verse. This is how it's translated in the message. Up, God! My God, help me! Slap their faces! First this cheek, then the other, and put your fist hard in their teeth! We don't often see that on a banner as you enter church, right? <laughs> what do we do with that? It's a different kind of psalm, isn't it? It's a psalm of lament. Uh, well, I'm going to read Psalm 3 today, right now. And as we read through it, uh, you'll notice something that occurs in many other psalms. A little word, I don't know if it's going to be on the screen, selah, S-E-L-A-H in some translations. In the New Living Translations, it says interlude. You're not meant to read that, but generally, selah is meant to be a kind of a pause. It might actually be a, a musical indication, and that's why they translate it in the New Living uh, Translation as interlude. I want to translate it as Guitar solo. Because <laughs> that's kind of what happens, right? You're supposed to say, amen, I heard an amen, good. Um, you're supposed to read part of it, and then there's a little, right? And there's a little guitar solo while you kind of let the words settle in, and then on to the next stanza. So just imagine that as I'm reading through. Maybe next week we'll work, Doug, we'll get a guitar solo going. <clears throat> Psalm 3. And just feel the pain of this. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying, God will never rescue him. Guitar solo. That's what it comes in. But you, oh Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety. For the Lord was watching over me. I'm not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Slap all my enemies in the face. 
Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. Guitar solo. Yes. Wow. What a psalm. Lamentation. It's an important part of our spiritual vocabulary, but sometimes we neglect it or we miss it. Lamentation is a prayer of help that comes from deep pain. That's what lamentation is all about. When we hurt physically or emotionally or spiritually, or usually all three at once, we cry out in lament to God. That's what David does so often in the Psalms. A psalm of lament is an address to God. It's not just saying words of pain. It's actually a complaint. We go to the complaints department, except we go directly to the source. We go to the head, and it's a complaint to God. It's also a request. But it's usually done in the context of trust, of confidence in God. You wouldn't complain to God if you didn't trust Him. You wouldn't spill out your guts to God if you didn't think that he cared. And so that's what we find with David, is this complaint that he gives to God, but it comes in the context of faith. It comes in the context of trust. And so lament gives us language for our pain. Anybody feel pain these days? Maybe physical, maybe emotional, maybe just looking at the state of the world around us. And we have this pain. Where do we find language? Well, some of the language comes from these psalms of lament. So what was David's great pain? What was troubling him? Well, he was fleeing for his life. A whole rebellion. This is the background of Psalm 3. A whole rebellion had come up against him. And he actually took his loyal people and he left Jerusalem. There's a whole lot of them. It wasn't just a handful of men. They left Jerusalem and they were hiding out. And so he was in pain, and he really felt like the world had turned against him as this rebellion came up. But the heart of his pain was this. At the head of the rebellion was his own son, Absalom. Absalom had reasons to hate his father. And we won't, it's, it's twisted, it's sorted. If you want to read a sorted, twisted story, if you feel your family is dysfunctional, and you want a little bit of hope, go read David's family because, man, it is off the charts. Uh, dysfunctional, right? Don't, don't point out your family members right now and say, <laughs> see? <laughs> but David's family, you can read the whole story in 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 19. It takes up a large section of Samuel's account. Absalom was angry at David because his sister had been raped. And David did nothing about it, really. But that just fuels Absalom's anger. And as he takes his anger too far, he ends up forming a whole rebellion against his father and chases him out of Jerusalem. And so no, David is on the run for his life, but from his own son. That's his pain. That would be a pain, wouldn't it? Remember when I was serving as a pastor in Richmond, B.C.? We had an opportunity to serve a family. It was part of our congregation. And the incident that had happened is that uh, one of the, the sons in the family, he was about eight, 17, 18 at the time, he had a psychotic break. And he walked all the way from White Rock all the way to Richmond. If anybody knows the area, you know it's a fairly long walk. And he walked all the way there. 
he went, broke into his uh, parents' home and stabbed his father in an attempt to kill him. His father didn't die. I was on the scene just shortly after to try and help take care of all the other kids. Uh, his father didn't die. And the good news story is that he got the help he needed. And he actually, I saw him, well, I guess it's probably 15 years ago now, and he was doing really well, living with his aunt, and it's a good news story in the end. But I remember meeting with his dad afterwards to kind of just work through what just happened. Where is God in all of this? Um, and this is what he said to me. That morning, I prayed for my son, and in the afternoon, he tried to kill me. What do I do with that? Do you feel the pain? That's what David's feeling. That's what my son, whom I love. David maybe wasn't the greatest father. No, he wasn't the greatest father. <laughs> but he did have a deep love and care for his children. We see that in various ways. He loved Absalom, and now Absalom was coming, hunting him down, wanting to kill him. Out of that pain, David speaks Psalm 3. That's the background to this entire psalm. So this is his lament when there's a rebellion against him, when those closest to him, his friends and his even family member has turned against him. He laments. He cries out to God for help from this place of deep pain. Have you been there? Have you felt that? When not only the whole world feels against you, but those closest to you, those who are supposed to have your back, feels like they've come against you. That's the situation that David is in. So how does he respond? Well, Psalm 3, I think, overall, is very helpful. But we have to be careful with it, right? There's certain parts of it that we have to be careful. But overall, it's very helpful as a pattern of response when we feel betrayed, even by those who are closest to us. What does David do? Well, the first key is this. He takes his pain to God. You know you can do that, right? Take your pain to God. Because what do we often do? We take our pain to whomever will listen to us. <laughs> and that's okay. There's a place for that. But sometimes in doing that, in sharing our pain with this person and this person and this person, it borders gossip and maybe slander. We have to be careful. Sometimes we overlook this first step. Take our pain to God. And that's what David does. And that's the admirable part of this uh, psalm. And as we work through the psalm, we see a kind of pattern. He starts with complaining to God. We can do that too. Verse 1 and 2. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. We can say to God, what's on our heart? It's okay. We can complain to God in this way. But then secondly, he expresses his confidence in God in verses 3 to 6. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield around me. Remember, even as we express our pain to God, our complaint, we do so in a relationship of trust. And then thirdly, in verse 7, he makes his request to God. Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. What would you like God to do for you? I used to love it when my brother Alan, as I got to know him, because he was much older than me and served as a pastor, and he would come to me to pray sometimes. So we'd get together, and he'd say, what would you like Jesus to do for you? And I was like, no one's ever asked me that before. I, never, I didn't think I'd be that specific in my prayer. And I think we can. Make your requests be made known to God. Let him sort it out. He'll say yes or no or wait for a minute, but just let, let your requests be made known to God. That's what David does here. Rescue me, my God. 
And then the fourth thing he does is praise. He praises God. In verse 8, victory comes from you, O Lord. But here's my question. What do we do with the violent part of this psalm? Is that part of our language? Is it okay to say, slap all my enemies in the face and shatter the teeth of the wicked when we're talking about our brother (laughs) or someone else that we might know that's close to us? He's talking about his son, right? So what is David doing here? And is it appropriate for us to do the same? I want to say right off the top, no, it's not. Um, Violent language uh, is also violence. And, And so what do we do with that when we find it in the Psalms? Well, here's maybe some things that will help us. First of all, a lot of the Psalms and a lot of the language you find is descriptive and not prescriptive, okay? This is describing David's state of mind, but it doesn't mean that it's a good example for us to follow. And we actually find that in the Bible quite a lot. It describes a series of events. It describes a state of mind. It describes an action that someone takes. That doesn't mean that automatically we get to follow, right? So we have to be careful who we're imitating. Imitate Jesus. When it comes down to a question of, do you imitate David or imitate Jesus? Pick Jesus, right? We know that? Okay, so it's descriptive and not prescriptive. The other thing I think we have to keep in mind is that this is poetic language. And that's important for us to understand too. And so in poetic language and in language in general, to slap someone's face is to kind of show contempt for that person, right? And so David, in a sense, is saying, um, um, hold these people in contempt. Don't honor my enemies. That's partly what David is saying here. Don't, don't give them any, any space to be honored. Slap them in the face. Show contempt for them, right? And then knocking their teeth in. I mean, at a time before dentures, I won't get you to raise your hands. I know dentures are a touchy subject. Um, but, but time before dentures, right? If all your teeth were knocked out, uh, you were somewhat incapacitated. It was difficult. And so, in a sense, this prayer is incapacitate my enemies, right? That's part of the poetic language that we're finding here. But there's a third thing that we can maybe look at, and that's this. David's expression, in a sense, is only natural. We've been there. I think we felt that at times. We, we, we lash out, at least in our minds, with words that wouldn't be appropriate to say in public. In our pain, we wish the worst on our enemies, even if they're not truly our enemies, but we've painted them as such. And so some of this is a natural response to pain. That's not to excuse it, but that's to understand it. This is a natural response to pain. I've shared some of this story before, but when we were establishing a new church in in, uh, Surrey called the Church at South Point, uh, we came to a point where we were looking for a permanent building, something that we could be in and inhabit. We had been renting in a school for a number of years, and we thought we found a place. The the, the area was growing like crazy, Um, but we realized that in Surrey, you could meet in commercial space and uh, still have assembly zoning in that commercial space. So we decided to, to grab a hold of this kind of cool, funky, and brand new commercial space that we thought would be ideal. And we jumped in way too quick. <laughs> um, our, the leaders signed on the bottom line, 
And then we only after we signed on the line started to read through, very foolish, started to read through, through the 35-page document that we had just signed. And uh, we ended up taking it to the lawyer after the fact, and the lawyer said, you need to get out of this now. And we were like, oh, no. But we were thankful because the, um, the landlord was a Christian. He went to another church in the community. We thought, he'll understand. No, he didn't. He's also a businessman. And he had us, and, and he knew it. And so we end up trying to battle and looking through because it was complicated and it was confusing and conflicting and dangerous, actually, for us. And so we had to have a lawyer. He had a lawyer, and his lawyer said, look, he's got deeper pockets than you. You're not going to win this. And so we had to pay a significant fee to get out of the contract. And that was devastating to us. So for literally probably the best part of a year after that, I had to drive past this building for some time. Every, every single day I drove past this building that cost us so much and, and really was kind of embarrassing for me as a leader and for all of our leaders, right? And every time I drove past, I wished to God that it would simply explode. <laughs> I prayed first that no one would be in it. I didn't want anybody to die. But I just, dear God, gas leak, whatever it is, just can you make that building blow up? I just want it to explode. Isn't that kind of the natural response sometimes? We, we, we want our enemies to not succeed, right? We find that in the story of Jonah too. Think back to the story of Jonah. It's not about can a man survive in a whale for three days, right? That's not what the story is about. Um, the story is about Jonah being called to his enemy. Jonah gets called to his enemies and he's told to give a message of repentance. And God does relent from the calamity that he's about to bring to Nineveh because the people repent. And Jonah's thrilled, right? No, he's so angry. Even after he knew what God would do, he knew that God would be merciful, but he's so angry. Why? Because it's far easier to desire the destruction of our enemies rather than their redemption. Far easier. So when I say that this is natural, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying this is our natural state of being. In Adam, this is how we naturally respond to those who offend us, to those who are seen to be our enemies. We want them to fail and to fail painfully. That's what's happening with David here. And, and we see that, right? But it's Jesus the son of David, who shows us a better way. And this is what we always have to hold on to when we're reading the Old Testament. We always have to come to Jesus. Because listen carefully to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, do you hear that? Jesus is saying, yeah, there's the law, the law that everybody honored and respected and obeyed. But I'm God's final word, and I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and in that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors 
do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Right? That's the challenge. That's the unnatural challenge of the gospel that we cannot do on our own. We need God's Spirit. So what we're seeing in David in this expression of wanting calamity to come to his enemies is part of our natural state. But in Christ, we are being called to something else. In fact, in the end, while David wanted Absalom to be unsuccessful in his rebellion, he did not actually want his son to have his teeth knocked out. He didn't. How do we know this? Well, if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18, you read about the death of Absalom, and some of you know this. Absalom was a pretty man. He was, he was a good-looking man, apparently, and he was good-looking, and this is why I don't like him very much, because he had an amazing head of hair, okay? That was Absalom, and uh, everybody knew it, and at the end, when they have this big battle together, Absalom's forces against David's forces, you, do you know what happens? Absalom is charging away on his donkey. I mean, he could have picked a better animal, I think, but he's charging away on his donkey, and he goes under a tree, maybe looking backwards to see who's chasing him, and his hair gets caught in the branches, which I think is a kind of poetic justice. But his hair gets caught in the branches, and his donkey takes off, and now he's dangling from his hair. And so the men surround him, David's men surround him, and one of them goes to the commander, Joab, and says, we have Absalom. And Joab says, why haven't you killed him already? And the men say, because David told us not to. He does not want his son to be harmed. So even David's rhetoric in his prayer of lament, he doesn't really intend that, does he? He doesn't want his son to be harmed. But what does Joab do, the commander? Because Joab, he's got his own uh, grief and beef with Absalom. He goes, he takes three javelins and stabs them into Absalom's heart. And if that wasn't enough, he gets all his armor bearers around and they basically hack him to death. I know that's really gruesome to say. I don't think I meant to say all that, but it's in the Bible, so you can read it. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive, just so we know that and are clear about it. What has happened? This is terrible news. When David hears the news, listen to his response. Then the messenger arrived and said, My lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. Answer to prayer, right? That's what he was praying in Psalm 3. Just uh, don't let my enemies succeed. And the enemies didn't succeed. The king asked the messenger, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the messenger replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. In other words, he's gone. He's dead. He's no longer. Wasn't that the prayer? Wasn't that Psalm 3? In a sense, it kind of was, right? But listen to what, how David responds. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What heartache 
for David to have to bear, right? And so we see in this that, that David's intent, even in his prayer, even in his rhetoric, wasn't really for Absalom to have his teeth smashed in and for him to be harmed. It's interesting, the Christian interpretation of David um, typically stem from and return to the idea that David is a man after God's own heart. You've heard that, right? Uh, but what does that mean? I think for most of us, when we think of David being a man after God's own heart, we think of how David steps up to slay the giant, or David steps up to be king, or, or maybe even David gives us a great example of repentance and forgiveness. And in this sense, he's a man after God's own heart. But perhaps David's cry of, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, is a better example of his heart being aligned with God's heart. It's in David's grief and his pain and his vulnerability that we actually get a glimpse of the, of the heart of the Father. That gives us an example that we need to follow. An author and commentator, Kate Danahe, she said this, Reading the stories of David with the assumption that his victories, as opposed to his grief, reveal God's heart, is a triumphalist view. It surely has its appeal, for it's easy to believe God wants us to defeat giants. It is less easy to accept that God wants us to spare our enemies, even when their continued lives would be a threat to our own power, perhaps even to our own lives. That's what Jonah had to wrestle with, and he failed at it, right? Because Nineveh, in the end, was a major threat to Israel, and in fact came and took them away. Sometimes we want our enemies to defeat, to be defeated, but Jesus calls us to bless them instead, even sometimes if they feel like a threat to us. It's interesting what's happening in David's heart and what we see. So what do we do when our friends, our family, when we feel like the world is turning against us? What do we do when those who are closest to us suddenly feel like our enemies? We turn to Psalm 3. It's maybe not comprehensive, but it's a good first step, isn't it? We take our pain to God. Let's start there. Take it to God. Complain. Do so in confidence. Make your request and praise God. But here's the twist that we have to add to Psalm 3. Let God vindicate you in the way that he sees best. Let God vindicate you in his time, in his way, rather than call for a violent response from God against our enemies. So in this way, we lament. And in this way, God, by his grace, can turn our mourning and our grief into joy and dancing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Even the bits that are raw and difficult, we think of your servant David and the complexity of his life. Help us to discern uh, what you want us to learn from him. But may he always guide us to your son. Father, help us to be followers of Jesus in these days. Help us to learn what it means to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us, while at the same time remaining safe and faithful to what you've called us to do and who you've called us to be. 
Give us grace to understand and the courage to follow after you. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you.